welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Neurology. This podcast brings you insights from three experts on the impact of intracerebral haemorrhage, ICH, in patients receiving direct oral anticoagulants, DOACs. The efficacy and safety data associated with reversal agents for DOAC ICH and optimising hemostatic stabilisation in patients with DOAC ICH. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from AstraZeneca. This activity is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. In our first interview, Professor Hannah Christensen will review the challenges and unmet needs for patients experiencing ICH. She will discuss the impact of ICH in patients receiving DOACs. My name is Professor Hannah Christensen and today I'm going to talk about the incidence, the impact and the unmet needs of patients receiving direct oral anticoagulant therapy who end up developing intracerebral hemorrhage. What is the burden of ICH in patients receiving DOACs? Well, overall, it is low because overall, DOACs are very efficient medications that prevent stroke in in people with atrial fibrillation. But for those very few who actually end up having an ICH, it's a large burden because it's a very severe condition. Um, so, So this is about... I think this is also very important for doctors because we don't want to harm our patients. But so, so, so that's why uh, we focus a lot on it. But if we look at numbers, if we look at the trials, uh, the risk is le- about one in a thousand. If we look at how many people we actually meet when we're working in a hospital, then at the moment, it is almost one out of four people who arrive with an ICH who are on an OAC. Um, and um, we, we, we at a point, we, we looked at um, how, how many people were on uh, OAC, DOEX or VKA, in comparison to how many people actually ended up having an ICH while on treatment. And what we actually found was that this was closely related to how many people who used the drugs. So when the DOACs were introduced, and these are much easier to use for people, many more people actually started being on an OAC, which is most likely to have prevented many ischemic strokes. But the number of people with an ICH who are on an OAC increased following the increase in use of OAC. And if we look at those who actually get this, uh, this ICH, then we see that they actually have quite high mortality rates. All about half of these patients die within the first three months. But the majority of those die within the first few days because this, these are very often very severe ICH. Whereas those who survive, their level of functioning after three or six months are pretty much at the same level as other people and who have had an ICH. And that is about a third of those regain uh, a reasonable level of functional independence. What are the barriers to improved clinical outcomes for patients with DOAC ICH? I think there are a number of 
of the barriers. And first of all, I think that we need to be aware that ICH as such has been slightly undertreated uh, during the, the latest years because people feel we cannot do so much for these people. There's some kind of a treatment nihilism. Uh, but there are also specific uh, barriers in people who are on an OAC, on a DOEG IC, uh, ICH uh, to, to, to treatment. And those are, to a large degree, the same as other people with a severe ICH. And that is the very, very high importance of initiating care urgently. These people need to go to a center that's able to handle them that's able to initiate treatment very swiftly, they're able to diagnose very swiftly. And um, further, when this ha even if this happens, these people, these patients uh, with OAC, ICH, they have a high risk of complications and further neurological deterioration. And that's because hematoma expansion is the most uh, frequent cause of um, of deterioration in OAC, in, in OAC and especially in ICH OAC. What we as doctors do to try to, to, to reduce the risk of, of, um, of uh, hematoma expansion is to use reversal agents. This will not take away the bleeding or make it become smaller, but we do hope and we, and we think we have some good signs that this will reduce the risk and the extent of hematoma expansion and thereby reduce the patient's risk of uh, further deteriorating. If we look at what people are doing in clinical practice, this is very much um, reflecting the fact that we have very little evidence of, on what actually works for people. There's uh, only, to my knowledge, only one completed and published trial um, in, in OAC ICH um, was a comparator um, showing uh, what works best. And that was a trial on less than 50 patients in VKA uh, versus PCC. So what you see in clinical practice is that it's very, very heterogeneous what people actually do, and that will obviously affect outcome. What patient factors are associated with increased risk for DOAC-ICH? A number of patient factors are associated with an increased risk of ICH when on OAC, but we have to be aware that these factors are almost the same as the factors that increases the patient's risk of having an ischemic stroke. So this means that we uh, cannot just avoid giving OAC to these people because those are the ones who will also benefit the most from getting OAC. Some of the risk factors um, we cannot modify, like age. Others, like blood pressure, are highly modifiable and it's very important that we have a, a large focus on keeping the blood pressure well-controlled um, in all patients, but specifically in these people, because this is closely related to, to, to a higher risk of stroke. Another area where we should also, as doctors, be, be very focused on risk, that is if people need more than one antitrombotic. There are certainly indications uh, where this is needed, and some patients end up being on double antiplatelets 
together with OAC, but these do certainly have a much higher risk of having an ICH than people who are just on an OAC. So we should be focused on, of course, giving it when it's needed, when there's the right uh, balance between risk and uh, benefit, but we should also be ready to stop it as soon as possible when this is no longer necessary. Um, there's one other thing that is one of the more complicated things, and that's the small vessel disease, because small vessel disease is um, related to both ischemic stroke and ICH. And some of the patients with small vessel disease, especially the, the, those who have a cerebral amyloid angiopathy, they have, the, and that, that's the one who gets the, the lobar bleedings, they are much more prone to bleeding than other patient populations. Can the functional outcomes of patients be predicted in the event of DOAC ICH? Well, yes, on a patient cohort level, to some degree on a patient level, but not with certainty. And that's why we should only issue uh, do not resuscitate or withdrawal of care orders within the first 48 hours in very, very special cases. The hematoma size, the averages what's uh, with, with poor outcome, uh, but we also need to be aware that it's very much depending on the location of the hematoma. If you have a pontine hematoma, 10 milliliters will reflect a very poor prognosis, whereas a 10 milliliter uh, hematoma in the frontal lobe may be almost without any symptoms, and a patient might survive a frontal hematoma, local hematoma at 60 or 70 milliliters with acceptable sequels. We can predict hematoma expansion by radiological signs, um, like the spot sign on a CT angiography, where we can see that the contrast leaks from the, the vessels, giving white dots on the scan. We can also use the non-contrast scan, which I think is very interesting because we always have that, um, and look for signs like the swirl sign, which is um, a, a number of signs that basically show something black in the hematoma representing blood that has not let yet coagulated. There's also things like the lobar location itself, and if people have cerebral atrophy, which most people have when, when, when at old age, uh, or practically all people have to some degree in old age, this means that um, cerebral herniation is, requires a very, very large volume, meaning that the patient is unlikely to die directly from, um, from the space occupying bleeding. Then we need to be aware, and now we're going to the next phase, that uh, stroke unit care, good stroke unit care, will prevent to a very high degree the complications that might otherwise be caused, cause death, like venous thromboembolism, um, because um, pulmonary embolism is actually one of the most common causes of death in, in older people with ICH. It will Good stroke unit care will also prevent infections. Uh, if the people lies flat down, if the patient lies flat down, then the risk of having both pneumonia and urinary tract infection is much higher 
than if they get to, to be mobilized at, to sitting position at least once in a while, but of course very careful mobilization. And last but not least, delirium is a lethal uh, condition. It leads to, to it has more than 50% mortality within the first year and is extremely common in, in people after ICH, but can to a high degree be prevented by good care, by having, and also by how you organize your care. If you have a lot of things saying beep and no daylight, then the risk of getting deliriums almost hundred percent. Thank you for that comprehensive overview, Professor Christensen. Now let's move on to our next interview, where Professor Torsten Steiner will explain the efficacy and safety data associated with reversal agents for the treatment of DOAC ICH. Hello, my name is Professor Torsten Steiner. I'll be talking today about the efficacy and safety data associated with reversal agents for the treatment of Dark ICH. How have prothrombin complex concentrate strategies been used to manage DOAC ICH? In PCCs, there are factors uh, 2, 7, 9, and 10. And uh, the important here, the important factor here in PCC is obviously the factor 10. The idea is you bring in factor 10 into the system by this increasing. Uh, the amount of factor 10 that can bind a certain amount of a DOAC and this in sum then leads to more free factor 10 that can then um, th that is then available for restarting uh, the clotting and by that um, preventing further hematoma expansion. PCCs have been studied in retrospective trials, for example, the one that was published by Costa in uh, Critical Care in 2022, uh, which was a retrospective study uh, that compared 95 patients who had um, uh, DOAC-associated ICH and were then treated with prothrombin complex, and the other group was treated with Andexanet alpha uh, included 107 patients. These patients, the last patients, were actually taken from the Annexa 4 trial, while the PCC uh, treated patients were taken from a registry. And then these um, both groups were compared, and it was looked uh, at the hemostatic effectiveness, and the hemostatic effectiveness was better in those patients who did receive an dexamet alpha. In fact, 85% um, of the patients had a good hemostatic effect compared to 68% uh, of patients who were treated with prostrimine complex. There was also a difference in the mortality rate. The mortality rate was about 8% in patients who did receive an dexamet alpha and about 20% in patients who did receive prothrombin complex. What reversal agents are available for factor 2A inhibitor-induced ICH and what evidence informs clinicians of their use in this setting? There is a reversal agent for a dabigatran, which is um, a um, antibody, a monoclonal humanized antibody fragment 
called adorosizumab, and uh, adorosizumab has a very high affinity uh, for dabigatran. In fact, it is uh, 350 times higher than uh, the binding to uh, throb uh, 2A. The adorosizumab was studied in a prospective case series, which built the base for the approval of the drug for reversal of dabigatran-related ICH. And there were several retrospective studies. One of these retrospective studies was a multi-center um, registry published by Kama in Stroke 2020. And in that study, there were 27 patients who had an intracerebral hemorrhage. And uh, it was uh, looked at the effect of the treatment uh, before and after, um, so baseline and um, after the treatment, looking at the NIH stroke scale, which is a functional outcome, uh, and seeing that the NIH stroke scale uh, was 3 um, compared to 7 uh, at baseline. Uh, also, it was looked at disability after and before the treatment. After the treatment, it was 3, and before the treatment, when the patients were admitted, had a modified ranking score of 4. Hydrozitumab is currently recommended um, for the treatment of dabigatran-related intracerebral hemorrhage and is used in routine, for example, in our hospital um, whenever there is a patient who has an ICH related to dabigatran. How should clinicians reverse ICH in patients who had received a factor 10A inhibitor? Andexanet alpha is um, uh, a factor 10, a modified factor 10. And the way how this works is that besides the factor 10 that is blocked by or that is linked to the DOAC, you are adding more factor 10, which then sucks away uh, the DOAC from the natural uh, factor 10. And by that, uh, factor 10 is again available for the coagulation cascade and can then uh, do its work and uh, start the clotting and um, hopefully um, has an hemostatic effect and reduce the uh, reducing hematoma expansion. Factor 10 uh, and exanet alpha was studied in a prospective case series, large prospective case series, and out of that uh, came the preliminary approval for apixaban and rivaroxaban. So far, we all know that there is an Anexa I study running. Uh, everybody's looking very much forward to see the results, which we will hopefully see in September this year during the WSC meeting in Toronto. But so far, we have to deal with a situation where Andexanet Alpha is approved for the use of Rivaroxaban and Apixaban. There are a couple of uh, retrospective studies and registry studies that had, have looked into 
uh, a comparison between Andexanet Alpha and usual care. Um, there is a study by Huttner that showed that usual care in many, many cases, up to 75% of the cases, um, uh, prothrombine complex is used. So it is more or less a comparison between Andexanet Alpha and uh, prothrombine complex. And what that study showed uh, that included uh, 182 patients was that patients with that who were treated with Andexanet Alpha had a significantly uh, lower rate of hematoma expansion. And um, the in-hospital mortality rate was also lower in patients who did receive Andexanet Alpha. Unfortunately, uh, the study could not prove uh, a functional benefit uh, for uh, patients who were treated with Andexanet Alpha Alpha after uh, three months, uh, but this is certainly due to the design of the study, the retrospective design, and to the relatively small number of patients that was included. And there is um, another observation and study uh, that uh, compared uh, Andexanet Alpha with four-factor PCC in this study. Uh, included patients who did receive Andexanet Alpha and patients who did receive four-factor PCC. And again, um, what we uh, in, in this study it turned out that uh, the mortality rate was significantly lower in those patients who did receive Andexanet Alpha. In fact, uh, the percentage of patients who died was 12.6% in the Andexanet Alpha group uh, compared to 23% in those in the, in the group where patients were treated with four-factor PCC. This is all in, in the range that uh, we would have expected, and that is, for my feeling, uh, reassuring um, when it comes to the question, what should we, what should we use, whether PCCs or Andexanet Alpha? And clearly all these results show that Andexanet Alpha is of more benefit than uh, the standard care, which in many cases is uh, consisting of prothrombine complex concentrates. What are the limitations of the current treatment options and unmet needs? Yeah, um, as said before, uh, the problem in parenthesis is... Um, uh, that in all those cases where we are talking about reversal agents, so far we do only we can only rely on either uh, non-randomized trials. Maybe there were some of them were prospective though, and uh, the rest of the evidence comes from retrospective data, and so we have limitations through the design of all these studies. And um, so that is the reason uh, why it is pretty important to that we that we will have more data and I'm I'm very happy and anxious to see the um, results of the Annexa I trial which will be probably published in, in, in September. 
The other thing is that um, the trials do tell us um, that um, patients, that the, that the therapy needs to be individualized. And the reason why that is, is because um, hematoma extension is time dependent. So things like the dose of the DOAC, the timing on of when the DOAC was taken is uh, very important. The key message here, though, is um, the earlier you start to reverse the effect of the DOAC, the better it is for the patient. This is something that has been shown again and again, also in patients with spontaneous ICH, where we do know that most of the hematoma expansion occurs already within the first three minutes. And when you imagine uh, about uh, patients who are on a blood thinner, this uh, time interval uh, will, may, will certainly uh, be longer. Still, it means that with every minute we wait, the, progno the pro prognosis is getting worse. And so the key message in using reversal agents in patients who have an ICH, whether or not related to uh, blood thinner DOAC, is be fast. Thank you for those useful insights, Professor Steiner. Now let's move on to our third and final interview, where Dr. Truman Milling will discuss optimizing hemostatic stabilization and subsequent health outcomes. Hello, I'm Dr. Truman Milling, and in this session, we're going to discuss how to optimize hemostatic stabilization and reverse anticoagulation in patients with DOAC-related intracranial hemorrhage, and then look at some of the subsequent health outcomes for these patients. What are the guideline recommendations for the use of reversal agents in patients with DOAC ICH? So I think there are subtle differences between the guidelines, but there is overall agreement in the approach to reversing anticoagulation in DOAC-related intracranial hemorrhage. Certainly, the major organizations of European Stroke, American Cardi Cardiology uh, College, and the American Heart Association sort of agree that specific reversal agents should be the first line for factor 10A inhibitors, such as rivaroxaban and apixaban. In that case, it would be indexinet-alpha. And idarucizumab for the one direct thrombin inhibitor, dabigatrin. These agents are not always available in every setting. So if those agents aren't available, there is some evidence for the use of prothrombin complex concentrate, not as a strict direct reversal agent, but as an overall hemostatic agent. However, there are, are ongoing randomized trials, some that are about to close, testing the specific agents such as indexnet alpha against non-specific agents such as PCC or other you know, usual care agents uh, that will shed some further light on the superiority uh, of the reversal agents in this setting. So the question here would be, what would I use if I had all of it available? And I think for rivaroxaban and apixaban, when you're facing one of the highest mortality and morbidity presentations in the emergency department, which is what DOAC-related intracranial hemorrhage is, you would use indexinet alpha and hopefully very quickly because hematoma expansion happens quite early in the process. 
And then a dabigatrin-associated bleed, you would use the monoclonal antibody, idarizizumab. Now, if these aren't available, there are certainly a number of prothrombin complex concentrates that are broadly available and could be used in a pinch when the specific agents aren't available. The question is whether they actually reverse the inhibitor, probably not, versus provide some degree of broad hemostatic support, which is possible. What individual patient characteristics should clinicians consider when using reversal agents for the management of DOAC ICH? So this is a very complicated question, right? You talk about it at the top level, DOAC-related intracranial hemorrhage. Okay, yeah, that's bad. We need to do something about it quickly. But how do you know that you're dealing with the DOAC versus just the intracranial hemorrhage? There are not broadly available point-of-care testing devices currently. They're in development to tell you for sure that somebody is truly anticoagulated with their DOAC, whether it's a pixaban, uh, rivaroxaban, adoxaban, or, or, you know, dabigatrin. Some places have them, but they're rare. So we use a surrogate of time, which we know is not particularly accurate. But if a patient has taken the DOAC in the last, say, 18 hours, which was the criteria for entry into the, the first endexident trial, there's a reasonably good chance that most of those patients are anticoagulated and that the DOAC is playing a role in the risk of the bleed. Right? The DOAC generally doesn't cause the bleed, it just makes it worse. It increases the risk of hematoma expansion and thus poorer outcomes. So the first thing you want to determine is, is the DOAC playing a role? And you'll probably in most settings be stuck using TOG. And then there's the question, of course, is if nobody knows the last dose. In such a high acuity setting, I think I would lean toward assuming that they're anticoagulated until I had evidence to the contrary because the outcomes are so uh, tenuous for these patients. But once you determine that the DOAC is on board, there is, there is an anticoagulant there to, to reverse, you might consider severity. But I would make the case here that even small bleeds need reversal and, in fact, provide the greatest opportunity for changing out, outcomes. Very large bleeds are going to do poorly no matter what you do. But a small bleed is an opportunity, right? Because a small bleed, especially an anticoagulated small intracranial hemorrhage, can become a big bleed very fast. Uh, so I would suggest that any bleeding in the cranium is a good reason for reversal. Uh, and, and the risk of hematoma expansion is lower for those bleeds, but it's not zero. And the risk of thromboembolic events in the first few days is actually quite low and generally not fatal where hematoma expansion carries great risk of mortality. If they need to go directly to surgical decompression, obviously the, the surgeon would greatly appreciate reversing the anticoagulant before they uh, do a craniotomy. And the caveat for using time, of course, is creatinine clearance because most of these drugs have a great degree of renal excretion. So if the patient has bad kidneys, 18 hours is not enough, right? They could be anticoagulated for several days from their last dose if their kidneys aren't eliminating the drug. The time window for reversal should simply be as quickly as possible. We know hematoma expansion happens within the first three hours. The opportunity, the window to intervene is, is very quick once the patient arrives in the ER. Uh, and of course, which agent you use depends on what you have. But if you have the specific agents, certainly those would be the first choice. And then after that, non-specific agents like prothrombin and complex concentrates. How should the hemostatic effectiveness of the reversal agents be defined and measured in the clinic? 
So after we've administered the reversal agent, there's the question of how do we define success? How do we define hemostatic efficacy? And it's not so simple. I think in the clinical trials, primarily this is defined by the hematomal volume, taking a CAT scan prior to reversal, measuring the hematoma, and then taking another one afterward, several hours later to 12 hours later, and looking at the two hematomal uh, volumes and comparing. Less than 35% is generally considered good hemostasis. It's not so simple as size because location in the brain matters quite a bit, the concept of eloquence. A small bleed in an eloquent place like the ponds can lead to total devastation, whereas a larger bleed in the lobes may not. And this leaves us to rely on clinical outcome scale. Certainly in the acute setting, the Glasgow Coma Scale is a measure of overall sort of sensorium and, and consciousness is a, is a good way to follow someone through time in those critical first few hours to days to see if their neurologic status is deteriorating. There are broader scales like the Glasgow Outcome Scale or the Modified Rankin Scale that aren't really validated in that early period, but can be a good way to measure the function of a patient across time. Generally, it's considered a failure. It certainly was in the clinical trials. If you have to ad administer additional hemostatic agents or coagulation factors in addition to the reversal agent, it's less important that you did it and caused the failure of the antibody, rather it's why you had to do it, right? If you had to give additional agents, one presumes the patient was not doing well. And that's more important to the clinician and the patient that their, their neurologic status continued to deteriorate. And that would obviously be a bad outcome. But if you can get them to discharge it at a neurologic state, similar to that they arrived in, that's success. When should treatment with DOAX be resumed following ICH? So this is the question that's launched a dozen clinical trials, uh, which are complete. So there is a lot of retrospective evidence that indicates res the restarting may be beneficial. And there is some retrospective evidence on when, right? The first question is always if, should I? Should I restart this patient on anticoagulation? And it goes back to what uh, we were talking about earlier is like intracranial hemorrhage is not one thing. There is traumatic intracranial hemorrhage and then there's multiple subtypes. There's spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage or hemorrhagic stroke and multiple subtypes. And it may be that these different phenotypes behave differently in terms of uh, if you should restart anticoagulation and obviously when. Within traumatic hemorrhage overall, the risk of restarting appears to be lower, but again, there are no prospective randomized trials at this time. And in spontaneous, it appears to be higher. And within spontaneous, the low bar hemorrhage seems to be the higher risk, whereas the deep hemorrhage is the lower risk. Uh, incidentally, within traumatic, it appears the large subdurals have the highest risk and may even have higher risk than the spontaneous bleeds. So I think the first question you have to answer is, should I restart this patient? And once you do that, then the question is when. The evidence is across the map. It's suggested everything from three days to 30 weeks. Uh, I think we're settling on something around four weeks, maybe as early as two weeks in patients who are really high risk for a thrombotic event. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. 
You can access more content on this topic at www.touchneurology.com. Music